Peace be with you. It's a great honor to uh, introduce Nelson Crable to you this morning. Many of us saw Nelson take up his new role as president of Mennonite World Conference last summer in Harrisburg. How many of us were there for that special occasion? Wow. Yeah. So we know who you are. (laughs) And uh, Nelson also comes to us as lead pastor of uh, Prairie Street Mennonite Church in Elkhart, Indiana. He's also the brother to a couple, at least a couple brothers here, maybe more. Uh, he is the younger brother of Elvin and the older brother of Leon. And any other brothers here? Okay. Nelson um, had a deep impact on my life around 20 years ago. I went to a uh, student day at Associated, then it was Associated Mennonite Biblical Seminary. And uh, Nelson was the new president, and I heard him preach. And something shifted in me uh, through that experience, and I felt God drawing me to uh, AMBS as a seminary. He embodied a deep love for God a desire to follow Jesus that I hoped someday could be part of my becoming a pastor and be part of my ministry. So uh, we welcome him here this morning, and uh, let's gather our hearts in prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, we invite you to stand among us here in your risen power. And to let this time of learning and receiving from your word be a hallowed hour. And breathe your Holy Spirit, breathe your Holy Spirit into every heart here. And above all, let our sorrows and all our fears from each soul depart. Amen. Thank you, Todd. What a pleasure to be at East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church, a congregation where I know lots of people. Uh, Looks like a few of you know me. Uh, A congregation that has been important to my family uh, and also a congregation that thinks globally. I was so much reminded of that this morning, seeing the map here. And I'm aware of all the ways you have been connected globally and some of you in your ministry and service in years past and just awareness of the global church. I'm pleased to be here this morning with Lynn Roth. Raise your hand, Lynn. Lynn is North American representative for Mennonite World Conference. He travels the continent and helps build connections uh, with Mennonite World Conference. And uh, so it's a pleasure to be with him here this morning, and he and I will be together, I think, in one of the Sunday school classes. I also honor some people in this congregation. Are Bob and Judy here? Did I, did I just hear somebody say that there was a death in the family there? Yeah, this was Bob, Bob's father died yesterday. Yeah, so Bob and Judy aren't here. Bob and Judy were tireless in bringing together the visas for 
Mennonite World Conference. They've done many other things for the global church, but recently they did this. And our Merle and Phyllis here this morning, I saw them yesterday. Yeah, there you are. Um, I, I honor your witness, especially through Mennonite World Conference. Over the decades, and I say decades, Merle and Phyllis have given generously of time and resources to strengthen the church. And roles that they have played in Mennonite World Conference have included Phyllis serving as a member of the executive committee, I believe, Merle writing a script for a play that was staged at the assembly in Brazil, um, developing and publishing the Anabaptist bookshelf, a collection of books that uh, sort of synthesize or uh, give a synopsis of Anabaptist theology. Merle taking thousands of photographs that then became useful for publicity. Uh, Merle and Phyllis doing fundraising for Mennonite World Conference in addition to their own generosity, serving as consultants for communication and, and advancement for, I believe, six global assemblies. So what you've done is something that also the whole congregation has been part of in various ways. But I particularly thank you for your, your work with Mennonite World Conference. Your uh, creative uh, volunteer work were, was an inspiration for me to say yes when Mennonite World Conference asked me to take the volunteer job of being a president. So, This is the first Sunday after Easter. It's a Sunday when, uh, along with the early disciples, we reflect on and integrate into our lives the meaning of the resurrection. What, what does this resurrection of Jesus mean? Is it... It has to be more than just the resuscitation of a corpse. It's the beginning of something new, a new turn in the kingdom of God. And Paul, the apostle, says, as he reflects on that, that the objective of his life is to know Christ and the power of Christ's resurrection. He wants to know Jesus. This is a relationship more than just an agenda. Recently, I asked a genealogist who has a massive Mennonite database, uh, Lauren John, some of you might know him. I asked him to enter Ellen's and my name into his database and just see what came up. He said, I'll do that. A week later, he came and he presented to me an 80-page notebook with hundreds and hundreds of names and charts, a complete uh, family genealogy for me, uh, and I saw there that my roots are entirely Lancaster County. You know, I, I'm just 100%. This is what it looks like. You know, <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you. Uh, but so my, my roots were completely Lancaster County. And then my wife and I, it turns out, are both descendants of Hans Herr. Uh, and we are sixth cousins. Uh, this, this fascinates me. And I want to do some of my own research. But such genealogy is something distinct from being church. I walked in this door this morning, and the first person I met was our worship leader this morning. I said, I'm Nelson Crable. He said, I'm Jonathan. What's your, what's your last name? Jonathan, Jonathan Stanley. And he gave me permission to tell you this. He said, uh, it's not a Mennonite name. <laughs> 
And I said, it is a Mennonite name. It most truly is a Mennonite name because we don't define the church by ethnic lines. At my congregation in Elkhart, we now have African-American members who have absolutely no Swiss roots. We have immigrants in the congregation from Honduras, Mexico, Guatemala, Venezuela, Argentina, Congo. This is a small congregation, not as big as this. And none of them have Swiss bloodlines. None of them have roots in Lancaster. The bond I feel with these sisters and brothers in Christ is deeper than the bond I feel with random cousins on my genealogy chart. This knowing Jesus and being committed together with the people of God is the deepest bond of my life. The Apostle Paul wrestled with what it means to be from a well-defined ethnic group and to then also be part of the church And his letters reflect the theology of a man who, wrestling with that identity, also thought globally. He would have put the map on the wall if he could have projected. When Paul crossed the Aegean Sea from Turkey into Greece, the same journey that so many Syrian refugees are making right now on the rafts, okay, that's where Paul crossed. When he made that passage... He was taking the good news of Jesus and the good news of the resurrection specifically into new territory. He was going from Asia to uh, Europe. Paul went straight away to Philippi, which was a Roman colony. This was a Roman settlement. And the first person he baptized there was Lydia, who was an international businesswoman from Turkey, Uh, She herself was a a global person. Interestingly, a business person. I'm fascinated as I get around the Mennonite world how often in other parts of the world you have business leaders who are also church leaders. Uh, We used to do that more in North America. We don't as much anymore. But this is what's happening with Lydia. She's a, a businesswoman. And she is a seller of purple. And purple was a color and a fabric that only the senatorial or equestrian classes of Roman society were allowed to wear. She was a woman well-connected with the elites of society. Next, the person that Paul baptized was the Roman jailer. Uh, And so the gospel is just going across all kinds of gender and national and linguistic boundaries. Paul always preached the power of the resurrection when he shared the gospel with these people. And he came to see that God was building the church, not just with the blood descendants of Abraham and Sarah, not just with the blood descendants of Hans Hur, but with men and women from every race and nation who have met Jesus. The church, he became convinced, is not even defined as people who believe exactly the right doctrines or follow exactly the right code of conduct. Conduct and doctrine might matter, but that's not what defines the church. It's people who have met Jesus, who have had the encounter with the risen Christ. Paul treasured his Jewish background. He constantly drew on the education 
that he received as a Pharisee, just as I draw from the formation that I received at Crable Mennonite School and Langston Mennonite High School and Goshen College, I draw on these. These are great strength to me, but they don't define the church, that uh, educational background. The Apostle Paul felt so strongly about this expanding boundaries that he used his strongest language in, in any of his letters. In Philippians 3, he takes a moment just sort of for rhetorical purposes to boast on his theological pedigree and his, his ethnic pedigree. I was circumcised as an infant. I am from the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am, am, am a disciplined Pharisee, an adherent of the law. I am a devout Jew. These are his credentials. All of that, Paul says in 3 verse 8, he now counts as rubbish because he has come to know Christ. Actually, the word he uses is stronger than rubbish. Our translations don't catch it. It would more accurately be translated something like the first syllable of shiitake mushroom. <laughs> Literally, he's, he uses a word that, that would, have, would startle us if it were in our Bibles, and it should be in our Bibles, because he's, he's frustrated, he's angry, and he's angry and frustrated at teachers who have come to Philippi to say that Christians have to be Jews in order, they have to become Jews first and be circumcised and, and, and fall within this ethnic uh, and strict Judaic tradition before you can become a follower of Jesus. And he uses a cuss word as he talks with them. Instead, Paul said he wants to know Christ and the power of Jesus' resurrection. That's his objective, not to fulfill a checklist of pedigree. Last summer, Lancaster Mennonite peoples played a major role in hosting thousands of Anabaptists from around the world at Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I know this congregation was not only very present physically, you were helping, you were, you were helping the host, and we thank you for that. Thank you for attending. Uh, in the meeting of peoples there, in the power of worship, in the, in the depth of communion that happens at an event like that, there was an experience of the resurrection. That's the, the power of the living Christ creating a new humanity. How did that event change your perception of the national and ethnic boundaries of the church, of the Mennonite church and the global church? Don't you come back from that just feeling a little bit different about what it means to be a Christian and to be an Anabaptist? Seeing the power of resurrection hope in communities around the world is one of the joys of being connected to the global church. One of my great joys in being involved in Mennonite World Conference is just seeing what God's doing and the power of the resurrection. Last fall, the Mennonite World Conference officers, four of us, met in Curitiba, Brazil. And one afternoon, we were taken across the city of Curitiba uh, in a car by Pastor Friedbert August, 
who came to AMBS as a seminary, a seminary student some years ago. He's a man a few young, uh, 10 years younger than me who was a senior person in Ford Motor Company, Brazil, uh, and just felt a call to the gospel and now is a pastor. Another example of this mix of the business world and church leaders that uh, seems to happen other parts of the world and very much in the early church. So we were driving through one neighborhood and Friedbert said, let me tell you about this neighborhood. He said, uh, a number of years ago, a poor man from this part of the big city of Curitiba came over into the area where a lot of Mennonites have settled in the city and knocked on the door of a wealthy Mennonite businessman. And the poor man asked for financial assistance. The businessman was skeptical. He didn't believe the guy that he was as poor as he described. Uh, they lived in such poverty that his house was a, sh- was a shack. The business, businessman said, okay, let's get in my car. You go show me where, where, we, where you live. And if, you, if it's really as bad as you say, I'll give you some help. So they drove into a slum of Curitiba, a really poor section. And uh, he, the businessman was appalled at how people lived in these were squatters and it was shacks made of tin and cardboard. And the businessman said, tomorrow I'm going to start building you a house. And this guy had resources to do it. I think he was a building contractor or something like that. In any case, the Mennonite businessman gets his resources and ends up building the guy a modest and sturdy brick house. Well, neighbors noticed, of course, and soon he was building uh, another house and, uh, and, and so on. Um, then the businessman and his wife got interested in that community. They, they decided to go door to door in that entire slum uh, quarter of the city to these squatter houses made of scrap wood and cardboard. And this couple personally registered the names of 1,502 households in there. They wrote them all down in their notebook. Then uh, they lobbied the city government to provide low-income or low-interest loans for these families to borrow money uh, very affordably, and the businessman would help coordinate building of the houses and providing his own, own resources there. Over a period of 12 years... The, uh, every house in that slum was rebuilt. Every one. They built, uh, uh, what, uh, 1,400 houses. For the first time ever, this part of the city got water, got electricity, sewers, and schools in this neighborhood. The businessman and his wife personally organized and got other people involved, classes on nutrition and hygiene and prenatal health. They got people in that neighborhood to help each other, to make clothing, to you know, start some industry. Classes and events they held always included a time to tell the gospel story. This couple became so known in the slum that they regularly drove their fine car uh, into that slummy area from the start, and they would leave it unlocked all day, and it was never touched in that neighborhood. They had friends there 
who were looking out for them. The businessman found such joy in what he was doing in this part of the city that he decided to sell his business interests and work full-time in this slum, in this neighborhood. The name of the neighborhood changed from Favela do Pavolin, which means Pavolin slum, to today it's simply called Pavolin. It's, that's just, it's, it's Pavolin. It's an area of the city. This, I suggest, is the power of the resurrection in the lives of people who met Jesus uh, and they saw Christ in the faces of others. Lord, when did we see you poor? When did we see you naked? When did we see you living in a shack? When did we see you coming as an undocumented alien? Pastor Friedbert would not tell me the names of this couple. And if I met them, I didn't know it. Because Friedbert said they want absolutely no recognition. They don't... Friedbert was even hesitant about me telling this much of the story today. I was online with him. Can I say this? Okay, you can say that, but uh, you know, don't press for the names and don't don't go for a published story. This couple does not, most emphatically, do not want that. They want no publicity or praise. They simply find overwhelming joy in sharing the good news of Jesus both spiritually and physically, physically with their city. And I asked Friedbert then, how has, uh, how has this businessman changed over the years as he's been involved in this? And he said, well, uh, he's a very, very successful businessman, and in church settings he used to have, this is Friedbert's words, strong opinions. I'm not sure what that means, but he had strong opinions He was a lone rider in many projects. Now, Friedbert said, he works closely with the church. He listens to others' opinions. This couple's lifestyle has changed dramatically. They live with much less than they used to. And he said, finally, they have become engaged Bible readers. Why are they engaged Bible readers? Because the trajectory of the biblical narrative and the story of Jesus and the reign of God is now really their story. They're part of the story. They're living into that. They're living into the power and reality of the resurrection. Around the world and in this country, God is at work And God is often at work at the boundaries, where groups meet one another, where rich and poor meet, where black and white meet, where English and Anglo or or English and Hispanic meet. And God is breaking down the barriers of prejudice, and God is writing injustices in places where races and cultures and classes meet helping to create these meeting points, these junctures, helping to provide a venue for that, and finding the common faith in Jesus is really the work of Mennonite World Conference. Uh, that's, that's That's the vision that we provide these junctures. 
The hardest place to explain uh, Mennonite World Conference and to promote it is in North America. And that's because we here, we have everything we need, thank you. We, we have medicine and education and we have community and we have our houses and jobs. I have these things. I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody else. We have these things. What do we really need the rest of the world for? Um, but how we do need the rest of the world. You know, it's not unusual when Mennonite World Conference leaders uh, go to another part of the world, such as uh, the officers recently being in Paraguay or Indonesia or Brazil. It's, it's not unusual for us to have a day of listening where we will just let the local Anabaptist churches know Mennonite, Mennonite World Conference people are there Come and and tell us your story. We don't give them a big spiel. We listen to them. And they come. And one of the the extraordinary things that happens is we find that there are Mennonite groups or Anabaptist-related groups that are in the same country that aren't even talking to each other. Or maybe there's been some history of division and alienation and they all come together and tell their stories together, what God's doing, spend a whole day doing that with some of the leaders of Mennonite World Conference. And then afterwards, we get an email from someone in that group saying, it was so amazing for us to sit with these sisters and brothers with whom we haven't spoken for 10 years. And, and since then, there's been some reconciliation and, and there's, there's a new sense of unity, just simply, and all we did was come, come and listen. But then, in spite of these struggles that go on in the national churches, and it's a good thing we don't have any struggles here in North America. Uh, I'm kidding, of course. We, don't we have struggles? This happens in all national bodies. But what always impresses me is just seeing the the examples of courageous witness. And I'm aware that there are are Anabaptists and other Christians who are in places of great suffering today in Nigeria or Syria or uh, uh, Colombia. Mercifully, the war there in Colombia, 60 years of war, seems to finally be winding down. And uh, Mennonites have had a small, small part in that peacemaking, and we thank God for that. Anabaptists have a distinct commitment to hold together evangelism and peacemaking. And in North America, we've had a tendency to bifurcate those two, and we've got kind of the peacemakers and the activists and the people that you know, do care about social justice, and then we kind of have the evangelists and people who want to church plant. Now, it's not that clean a break, but we have a tendency to go in those two directions. And I'm deeply persuaded that the future of the church, and particularly the future of the Anabaptist church, is holding together the, the mission evangelism, calling to faith, the confessional core of our uh, of the gospel, and holding that together with the distinctive peacemaking and service and justice 
concerns that God has put on our heart. Mennonite World Conference, of course, is much more than just an assembly. We do an assembly every six years. But in the intervening years, uh, there are active commissions that keep working. There's a Peace Commission, Mission Commission, Faith and Life Commission, Deacons Commission. These are international groups of volunteers who work often by Skype and whatever means they can with very limited resources to work on theological and uh, a, a missional agenda for the global church. Um, if you go to the Mennonite World Conference website, you can see much more of what they, these groups are doing. Just two brief examples. Last week, members of the Faith and Life Commission met in Colombia, where your youth are going. Uh, and they met there, uh, Mennonites meeting with delegates of the global Catholic Church and the global Lutheran Church. Uh, the last couple of years has been something of a trilateral dialogue going on. And what this is, is Catholics, Lutherans, and Anabaptists reaching back into the 16th century Reformation, looking at the wounding, the deep wounding that happened within the body of Christ there, and beginning to build bridges in a new way and to address some of the wrongs of the past, anticipating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation and the 500th anniversary of Anabaptism within the next decade. These events, uh, or global events, will be celebrated. So Mennonites, Mennonite World Conference is involved in some of those conversations. Two days ago, I met by Skype with the other officers, including Cesar Garcia, who's executive secretary. Mennonite World Conference uh, headquarters now are in Bogota, Colombia. Uh, so the officers met by Skype. We do this once a month. And the agenda that day was to approve the blueprint submitted by the YABS, Y-A-B-S, Young Anabaptists group in World Conference. They're called YABS. And they've laid out, a group of young adults have laid out a six-year plan leading up to the global youth assembly in uh, Indonesia uh, coinciding with the assembly of everybody, of all Mennonites. Well, I, it, there's very much detail in what they're doing, but it's ambitious. These are young adults. These are people, now young adults in World Conference terms is under 35, but these are emerging leaders. And to see these leaders with such vision is exciting. Mennonite World Conference seeks to build relationships with among 100 denominations. We are not one global denomination. We're not organized that way. I am not the Pope. Uh, we, we don't have anybody in that role. Uh, we, we're 100 denominations. And then World Conference is a networking, bringing these Anabaptist groups into conversation. And how our broken world needs the leavening of this uh, this particular part of the body of Christ with commitment to evangelism and peacemaking. Uh, Christians who stand before the throne of God and the Lamb, and they are there with people from every language and nation and tongue uh, now within the Mennonite church. And we are before God and the Lamb and seeking to follow the Lamb in the way of peace. God bless you for being part of the Global uh, Church, Mennonite World Conference, thank you for your contribution uh, in many ways. And thank you, God bless you, and your witness here 
in Elkhart for the way of Jesus. Amen.